really wise if you all came up a lot closer because I've got some stuff I want to show you and you might want to come around and look at it later. And I don't know how I'm going to jam all this in in an hour, but we're going to try. And I'm uh, very appreciative of any questions or comments you want to share, um, as long as we don't share more than I do. But <laughs> uh, this is... Um, I'm kind of enjoying the start of the foundations class, and that's what this is. So today you're going to get a brief history of the PCA. Um, well, not so brief. I'm having a hard time figuring out how I'm going to jam it in an hour, actually, and show you the history of this church itself. And I will tell you, I was um, active in the church before this building was built, so I can tell you from personal history, experience the history more than 40 years back, so. All right, let me, I'm going to read a lot of reading and spit in some of my own in the middle of it, and you'll be doing good if you catch what I'm spitting in what I'm reading, probably, but um, uh, PCA, one of its major sites, has a brief history, so I, uh, much more intelligent people than I am wrote this and did a very fine job, so I want to share that first. So here's a brief history, supposedly, <clears throat> a brief history of the Presbyterian Church in America. The Presbyterian Church in America has a strong commitment to evangelism, missionary work at home and abroad, and to Christian education. From its inception, the church has determined its purpose to be faithful to the scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. Organized at the Constitutional Assembly in December 1973, this church was first known as the National Presbyterian Church, and it changed its name to the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, in 1974. It separated from the Presbyterian Church of the United States, which was the southern part of the Presbyterians, in opposition to the long-developing theological liberalism which denied the deity of Jesus Christ and the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. Additionally, the PCA held to the traditional position on the role of women in church. And what they're saying is, and I'll make sure that I clarify as much as I can, but they're saying there are two major offices in Presbyterianism, and that's elder and deacon, and the PCA holds to women should not hold those offices. And the PCUSA started to slide that way, and that's one of the reasons that the PCA was formed. It's just one. We'll get into several more. Um, in December 1973, delegates representing some 260 congregations with a combined communicant membership of over 41,000 that had left the PCUS gathered at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where we just had General Assembly, by the way. Um, and organized the National Presbyterian Church, like I said, which later became the PCA. In 1982, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod joined the Presbyterian Church in America. The Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod had been formed in 1965 by a merger of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America General Synod. By the way, I normally don't talk this fast, but we have an awful lot to cover, so I'm going to talk fast. So hang in there, tune your ears. Um, the PCA made a firm commitment on the doctrinal standards which have been significant in Presbyterianism since 1645. 
So if you went back in our history in 1645, that's when Presbyterian churches first started to develop in the United States. Namely, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechism. By the way, it is pronounced Westminster, not Westminster, like I hear a lot of people say. These doctrinal standards express the distinctives of the Calvinistic or the Reformed tradition. Among the distinctive doctrines of the Westminster Standards and the Reformed tradition is the unique authority of the Bible. The Reformers based all of their claims on sola scripture, meaning scripture alone. This included the doctrine of their inspiration, which is a special act of the Holy Spirit by which he guided the writers of the books of scripture, their original autographs, to, um, so that their words should convey the thoughts he wished and conveyed, bear a proper relation to the thought of other inspired books, be kept free from errors of fact, doctrine, and judgment, all of which were to be the infallible rule of faith and life. Historically, the concept of infallibility is included in the errancy of Scripture. Nice way of summing all that up is, although men wrote the Bible, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and their writings are considered the direct word of God inerrant. And that's what the PCA stands to. So all that that I just read, that's basically what they were saying. So I just wanted to make sure that all the blah, blah that I read didn't lose you. So, Among the distinctive doctrines of the Westminster Standard, and the, oh, I already read that. Other distinctives are the doctrines of grace, which depict what God has done for mankind's salvation. And it goes through what we would call tulip. And I'll tell you, total depravity is the first, the T. Total depravity of man. Man is completely incapable within himself to reach out towards God. Man is totally at enmity with God. And you can read about that in Romans 3, 10 through 23. Unconditional election, that's what the U is in Tulip, by the grace of God. There is absolutely no condition in any person for which God would save him. As a matter of fact, long before man was even created, God chose or predestined some to everlasting life. He did this out of his mere good pleasure. You can read about that in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Particular atonement. God in his infinite mercy, in order to accomplish the planned redemption, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute for the sins of a large but specific number of people. And you can read about that in Romans 8, 29, and 30. The irresistible grace of God. This is the effectual work of the Holy Spirit moving upon a particular person whom he has called, applying the work of redemption. And that's in John 3, 5, and 6. The perseverance of the saints. And that's the last, the P in Tulip. This is the gracious work of God's sanctification whereby he enables a saved person to preserve to the end, even though during the process of sanctification it's never complete in this life, from God's perspective, it is as good as accomplished. So, even though we sin daily, if we've been chosen, the Holy Spirit's going to work actively in our lives, we're going to believe truth, and we're going to be secure in our salvation. It's not dependent upon our actions, it's dependent upon God. We never had a heart for the Lord. We were enmity. We were enemies of God until he changed our heart and gave us desire for him. 
And when you get that desire, you slowly begin to love God more and more and more and more, and slowly desire to be more holy as he is holy, 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 and tells us to be holy uh, and to be more like his son, Jesus. Hmm. Okay. The PCA maintains the historic polity of Presbyterian governance set forth in the Book of Church Order, namely rule by presbyters, also called elders, and uh, graded assemblies or courts. These courts are the session at the church level, the presbytery for regional matters, and our presbytery is uh, Central Carolina and Charlotte, um, and the general assembly for the national level. And like I say, we just had a general assembly in Birmingham, Alabama. It has taken seriously the position of the parity of elders, making the distinction between the two classes of elders, that being the teaching elder and the ruling elder. So in our PCA, elders do not have more authority over each other. They're equal in authority. They have different tasks, different jobs. Um, Let's see. It has self-consciously taken a more democratic position, a rule from the grassroots up on Presbyterian governance, in contrast to mere prelatical form rule from the top down. So they're saying, as a congregation, you elect leaders of your church. You elect the deacons and the elders. And those elders represent you. It's not that some higher authority comes down and tells you what to do and, and maintains the leadership for you. You literally elect the leaders of your church. So that's a, you know, it's, we th- probably take that for granted, but all churches are not like that. The PCA ministry, uh, here comes some things in the PCA that you may or may not know about. The PCA ministry building in Lawrenceville is the location from which most ministries in the denomination are coordinated. These ministries are carried out by four-program committee. So here's the four programs. Missions to the world, missions to North America, Christian education and publications, reformed university ministries. And there is one service committee, the administrative committee that's responsible for the General Assembly. Additionally, there are five agencies which also minister to the denomination. The PCA Foundation, the PCA Retirement and Benefits Incorporated, both located in Lawrenceville, Ridge Haven, which is located here in North Carolina in the mountains, close to Rosman. Great place to go for summer, by the way. Both of my daughters were counselors at that um, at Ridge Haven. So, Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. <clears throat> the PCA. Now, this is the part where it starts to get more interesting to me, anyway. PCA right now is one of the fastest growing denominations in the United States with over 1,700 churches and missions throughout the USA and Canada. There were over 335,000 communicant and non-communicant members as of December 2000. That's, you know, 22 years ago. The influence of the PCA extends far beyond the walls of the, the local churches. Missions to the World has 519 career missionaries and almost 60 nations of the world, 169 two-year missionaries, and over 6,500 short-term missionaries. 
because of the unique relationship between the missions to the world and over 30 missions organizations with whom some of our missionaries are working, some consider that the influence is far greater than our size might imply. Indeed, the PCA churches support an additional 690 career missionaries covering over 130 nations. Further, more than 100 chaplains in the military, veterans administration, prisons, hospitals, 45 colleges, and university campus ministers. The gospel is proclaimed to a rather large audience around the world not reached through usual outreach channels. Because of the emphasis on education, there are a large number of members in the PCA who are teachers and professors at all levels, including a significant number of large universities and theological seminaries. In this new century, the Presbyterian Church of America continues its commitment to evangelism worldwide and building up of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, that was written up by James Montgomery Boyce, John Edward Richards, Frank Joseph Smith, and Morton Smith. So before I get into, believe it or not, more details and more interesting aspects, do you have any questions or comments or anything you want to discuss? Right. All all elders are chosen to teach, but in the PCA, um, teaching elders are the pastors of the church that would would give sermons. You know that I, as an elder, can go up and give, can speak from the pulpit, but I cannot preach like a pastor does. I have not been ordained. I have not been... Yeah. So that's a... And the... uh, I wish Michael was here to tell you because I watched him go through it twice. Uh... All the, the examples in the pres- uh, all teaching elders do not report to the local church. They re- report to the presbytery. So he's a member of presbytery, and frequently he can't uh, vote on some of the things that we vote on. But did that fully answer it? Or okay. So yeah, we can we can get up. You saw one of our elders recently, uh, you know, give a lesson from the pulpit, but he was not preaching like a teaching elder would and is basically not qualified and hasn't been tested in great detail um, they go before a committee that committee spends a month reviewing them and probably two to three days actual contact with them and then they go before the whole presbytery for questions and answers and I've been through a bunch of that and some of them are pretty in-depth and you go these guys really have to know their stuff During the questions, they'll just take a section of the Bible and say, James, tell us what you know about James right now. And then, you know, Genesis, tell us what Genesis is and why. And they have to have great detailed answers. And then they'll ask specific questions that, you know, most of us wouldn't be able to answer. Not adequately, anyway. Any other, I like that question, by the way. Any other questions or comments? Is this what you thought the PCA was all about? Okay. All right, so another one of the elders in the church who taught on this gave me a bunch of information, and I want to share part of it. Definitely don't want to share all of it. Um, Two fellows that did great research in the PCA's history. Um, Let's see if I can find. Uh, Historian. 
D.J. Hart and John R. Muller. Uh, so D.J. Hart, um, I'm going to skip some of his uh, opening comments because they're pretty, pretty much already talked about. But what I do want to say is he says, what does Hall say? This is Hall. What does Hall say may be unifying principle in the information of the PCA? In the early days, the PCA founders might have unified around these initials, ABL, anything but liberal. What did this lead to? He says, such hodgepodge of motives, not always capable of sorting out uh, well under duress. Let us not form out a monolithic movement. And its outset, the PCA was heterogeneous. If you don't know what heterogeneous means, it means it's a combination of lots of people's different views. So they didn't single down to just one group. It was a large group of different views. Hall says this should both be appreciated and should be a call to officers to foster a biblical identity for the future. Then Hall starts his short story of what led to the formation of the PCA in 73. Before we go any further, I want to share this with you. I would say you asked the difference between teaching and ruling elders. Well, one of the huge differences in the past, and hopefully would not be in the future, was in December 7th, 1973, this is when the PCA basically started. This hangs on the wall out there. Most of us don't even pay attention to it. If you look, this is almost all ruling elders. The ruling elders in the start of the PCA were the ones that said, absolutely not. We are not going to go forward with the liberalization and the removal of Scripture and it's uh, everything being biblically centered, and we're not going to pull away from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're not going to use other confessions as our primary confession. So I'm, I'm grateful that the people in the past stood strongly, and there were several people, guys with doctorate degrees and everything else, that, that spent lots of time and effort to help us make that transition. And we're going to glimpse at some of that. And then I'm going to give you a brief history of this church and, uh, and I have a nice booklet up here. You could actually see me like 40 years ago with no beard. And you're going to go, ooh, he had hair back then too. <laughs> um, what were the two you know, predecessor denominations or strains that, to the PCA? And the Southern Presbyterian tradition exhibited back then by the PCUS, Presbyterian Church in the United States, and the more Reformed, smaller denominations such as the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the ARP, the Associate Presbyterian Church, which has direct ties to Scotland and originally separated, was separated from the American Presbyterianism, the RPCES, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which would eventually join us in 1983. All these denominations professed some level of allegiance to Scripture and the Confession, but the second part, you know, everybody but the PCUS uh, had much stronger adherence to the Westminster Confession standards. By the way, of all these Reformed churches that I just read, the PCA is substantially larger in, in number. Um, surprising. Um, several earlier dissenting groups of the PCUS began to surface after World War II. Small number of Presbyterian congregations left the mainline church between 1948 and 1968, 
and they were leaving for the exact reasons that we started to describe, but it was what you would, nowadays they would say progressive, we used to say liberal, they're going to come up with another name that they're going to want to be called sometime in the future, I'm sure. But what four groups would contribute to the first steering committee, the foundation of the PCA? Well, the first group would be the Presbyterian Journal. It was a publication which later became the World Magazine. It was founded uh, when a returning medical missionary, Dr. Nelson Bell, who happened to be the father-in-law to Billy Graham, returned from a life of ministry of work in China. And when he came back, he discovered the church was drastically changed for the worse. And he had, you know, started speaking up, saying, what happened to the church? I had no idea it had changed that much. And so he was one of the first ones to stand up and start saying, this is a wrong direction. He and a few others based their work near Asheville, North Carolina, provided journalistic voice of dissent and criticism of the mainline Presbyterian denomination. And along with him, G.K. or G. Akin Taylor and others would start fueling the beginning of the PCA. The second group was the Presbyterian Evangelistic Fellowship. This attempt to re-evangelize Southern Presbyterian congregations was begun in 1958 by the Reverend Bill Hill. They happened to be a real short guy, so he comments as an evangelistic, he was as fiery in spirit as he was short in stature. So he must have been like five foot tall. Reverend Hill and others formed a network of evangelists with the PCUS who can consistently opposed liberalism. Other key associates in PEF, which continued to the present, were Ben Wilkinson and Kennedy Smart. Okay, the third group was concerned Presbyterians. One of the extraordinary aspects of the PCA's origin was the presence of the determined cadre of ruling elders and laymen, exactly what I was just talking about, who refused to allow their church to drift leftward. Kenneth Keyes, a realtor in Miami, Jack Williamson, an attorney in Greenville in Alabama, and other united non-ministers together joined to oppose the liberal, uh, liberalism of the PCUS. These dedicated Christians brought corporate and business sense to the table and continued to be a strong voice in the formation of what became the PCA. And the fourth and last group was the Presbyterian Church, Churchmen United, the ministerial counterpart to the concerned Presbyterians was formed in the late 1960s to preserve a traditional remnant of the PCA and to oppose specific measures at the Presbyterian General Assembly level. These four groups helped publicize the weakness of the progressive Presbyterianism and organize Southerns to oppose modern progressiveness of the PCUS. Hall then states that clearly this denomination was formed as much in opposition as it was around positive messaging. So numerous specifics that involved the PCUS that gave rise to the PCA. Uh, there are so many of them. I'm looking at the time, and I don't want to waste too much time, but I'll go through a good number of these. Plan of Union, 1954. This was the first attempt to unite the northern UPC-USA and the southern branches of Presbyterians and the PCUS, but failed. The issue with combining the two was the North was very liberal already. And anybody who did not want liberalism was very opposed to combining the two of them because they said that was most likely the end of, of uh, anything that we would consider a serious church. Um, the second thing would be the ordination of women elders. This change was approved by the PCUS 
1964 and was viewed as an attempt to either modernize the ancient church's practice or to prepare the PCUS for eventual union with the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterians. I want to stop for a second and make sure that I express this well. There are attributes of God. I, I taught the senior men's group the attributes of God, and we all know he is all-knowing, he's all-present, he's all-powerful, but he's immutable. And immutable means he doesn't change. That's why I love it when somebody tells me, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, I just like the New Testament. It's the same God, and he didn't change. So that's, that's a misunderstanding, terribly misunderstanding. But the thing that gets me is, I taught for 10 years, and my students constantly, I taught computer engineering, and my students constantly told me that new is always better. And I constantly said, not necessarily. And some of the older things are fabulously better than some of the new things. And I would show them examples, including my glasses. I had Ray-Ban glasses, and I would take them off and say, we, we had a day that we would dress uh, 60s and 70s. And I would come in dressed with flare pants and everything, and they were like, what is that? And I love your glasses. I said, these are glasses. They're made with glass. That's why they were called glasses. Nobody makes them that way anymore for good reason. But, but, and I said, they did a fabulous job of filtering the sun uh, like nothing does right now. Um, but anyway, what I wanted to say is people constantly want to uh, think that new is better. Um, like I have to have the absolute newest cell phone. I don't, by the way, and I've taught how to repair those. Um, my cell phone is one generation back, and I got it after about three generations had passed, and I felt like it was now old enough that it wasn't able to do a lot of the things I wanted to do. Other than that, I would have kept using it. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in getting your money's worth out of things, and the little differences in the new one's camera is about the only thing that is, and I don't use them, so... There's no reason for me to do that. Well, I'm saying that, I guess what I'm trying to say is God's eternal wisdom, the past, present, and future are all identical to God, just like the present is for us. He's the only one that can promise something and guarantee it's going to happen because he knows the future. It's not like us. We can promise our children or a relative that we're going to do something, and something could stop us. We could be going to take them to a ball to get them to take to a ball game or something that we promised and get in an accident. We had no control over that, maybe, and we can't provide that promise. God is in full control, and when He promises something, it happens. That's why the things that God has written in His book, the Bible, are absolutely true eternally, past, present, and future. And for us to think that we need to change the way the Bible is applied with time is frequently very foolish. Uh, so I'm just letting you know that's part of what's going on. Uh, as people around in the nation started to become, uh, I would say, less godly or less biblical, uh, they try to, churches would try to adapt to draw people in, saying this is the way to get more people into our church. Fortunately, mostly the PCA does not do that. I would say mostly because some some churches do a little bit of that, and I'm not in favor of it at all. Um,
View of Scripture. This is one of the other things that, uh, that got us started in the BCA. In both the seminaries and in official publications, it became increasingly clear that the mainline church did not value Scripture as the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Scripture was not treated as the sole authority for declining mainline church. And that's one thing the PCA does not agree with at all. Weakening of ordination vows. The second view of Scripture changed in reality. Naturally, the office position of the church changed as well. Eventually, the PCUS changed their codified ordination vows on Scripture from the only infallible rule of faith and practice to Scripture contains the Word of God. What a huge change. A really bad change. I mean, so I am very grateful to be um, called to the PCA. Uh, a second plan for reunion. In 1969, um, Hall says the denominational progressives rarely gave up on trying to join the North back, so they tried again. Here's the second reunification attempt. Uh, it was very narrowly defeated in 1969. Nevertheless, the gains in support clearly indicated that there was a near inevitability of reunion in the future. Another reason that people started looking to form the PCA. Even the defeat of the second plan, however, led to more encroachment of the traditional Presbyterianism in the South, as the next two items indicate. So what they're talking about is, in 1970, uh, the PCUS restructured the General Assembly. The major boards and committees of the Southern PCUS were restructured. More conservatives and traditional elements were minimized or reorganized toward the sidelines. And then... Unions and synods and union presbyteries also followed 1969 and defeated reunion. Um, the constitutions of both northern and southern Presbyterian denominations permitted courts, which were geographically contiguous to courts and the other denominations, to declare themselves union courts. According to a de facto union around the borders, basically they worked real hard to get as many liberals out of the denomination's control as possible or influence. And then books of confession, following the, P, the UPCUS practice, the northern church, that is, the southern presbyteries eventually adopted a pluralistic approach to confessions, allowing uh, ordinance to profess their ad adherence to a number of confessions, at least one of them by Karl Barth, instead of holding to the single Westminster Confession of Faith. We still hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, by the way. Um, well, I'm looking at the time. Are there any comments or questions anybody has at this point? Because this is like very detailed. Do any of y'all know it? Go ahead. Oh, you got a question. Yes, sir. I wish I had it sitting right before me because we had a much longer agenda and we shortened it, and I don't have in my mind the shortened version very well. Um, my hope is that, uh, of all things, you'll get a much better understanding of what Reformed faith is, um, and why we stand so strongly on wanting to be reformed. 
you'll get uh, uh, much more of the definitions of the things I just said, the inerrancy of the Bible. Um, you'll get what the church really stands for and why. Um, you'll get what um, baptism is all about, and you'll get what's called pedo-baptism or baptism of uh, infants and why we say that's uh, acceptable practice. And several people would say not, but um, I would love to have discussion with whoever doesn't. Um, and everybody I've ever known that, that became a member of this church and changed their views on that didn't change immediately. Sometimes it took years for that view to take hold and for them to say, yeah, I get it. Um, baptism of children is an acceptable thing. Um, the foundation classes, this one, man, I just don't want to kill the time. Um, this one is just the core of how do we got started as a PCA, and there's so much detail. One of the things they did, and I'll do that, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about this church itself, uh, Cross Creek. Uh, Economical, do you guys know what that mean, term means? Well, yes. You know, I knew that you would have a good grasp. I just, because you've spoken so, so, in so many classes wisely, I might add. Uh, does anyone, well, he goes, does anyone not know what ecumenical means? I admit I thought for a long time it meant something like things pertaining to the church. But it really means, means promoting unity across denominations. So the PCUS started trying to promote unity and became less and less selective on or critical on who they would allow to be part of the church and started bringing in more and more diversions away from the core beliefs that they originally had. I will tell you that, um, most of you probably don't know that, um, I, um, I was adopted twice, so I did not get to meet my real dad until I was in my 45, 45 46 years old. And um, he had a son by second marriage who was Presbyterian USA, and his wife was a pastor. And one day he came to me and said, why did you leave the church? And I said, you got it backwards. You guys left the church and we stayed. And that's what I would say the PCUS, PCA is all about. It is, we are not going to go away from the core beliefs that the Presbyterianism had for centuries and start getting more and more to the left, more and more liberal. And that's the main reason that the PCA was formed and hopefully the main thing that we will stay focused on. There is constantly nagging attempts to change our church and to make it more liberal, constantly. And the one thing I can say uh, after serving on the uh, Overtures Committee this year is that the liberal side will not stop trying. They will try the same things that fail over and over and over again because they just will not give up. Well, personally, I've made the commitment that on the opposite side, I will not give up. And I'm disappointed in some of the people that have left the PCA thinking that there's no hope that we're going to become liberal because the battle is not 
over it all. Now is the time to stand strong for godliness. So you're talking about some of the um, things that Presbyterians are voting on right now? Well, yeah, I could give you the specifics, but what you really want to know is there's some major items um, being voted on this year. And there's another one coming next year that I want to make sure you're aware of. But major items are we had a pastor three years ago declare that he was a gay pastor. Um, and we, and I can tell you, I sat in the uh, Overtures Committee with 174 members, and all 174 of us were totally opposed to using a sinful name on pastor. Doesn't, not just gay, I mean, do you want to say I'm an adulterous pastor? I'm an, you know, whatever the sin is, no. Because when the Lord chooses you and you're given a new heart, you've changed. And that is kind of a declaration of, no, I haven't. And he also made the statement that although, you know, he had not practiced the gay desires he had, he was celibate, um, that that was okay. It's not okay. Um, the, the mere thoughts of sin is something we're strongly to resist and oppose. And nobody's saying that no one is perfect without sin, but we really don't want to have a guy that's a pastor standing up making statements like that and then declaring that the church is um, doing a disservice to people that have gay tendencies. Well, we're doing a disservice to anybody that has sinful tendencies based on his comments. Um, one of the other things that, that I would love for you to pray about that we went through for more than three hours of debate and did not resolve, and it goes over to the next General Assembly, um, is um, handling... when young children are involved in discipline issues in the church and they have to testify. So suppose, well, I hate doing this, and I hope, I'm glad there's not young children here. Uh, suppose a young child's been abused by an adult and now they have to testify. To look at that adult again after that abuse can trigger post-traumatic stress syndrome. And there's a huge concern of what steps can be taken I was very grateful that the, the committee I was on had a number of lawyers and that they could tell you, you know, if this went to civil court, what things we had to deal with in advance, what documents and things we should have as part of the statements that our church believes in so that if it goes before civil court, it stands strong for our denomination. Um, we did not resolve those. We came up with about 15 things we tried. The wording is so critical uh, because it all has to be passed by two-thirds of the presbyteries. So uh, the wording was never deemed good enough to do that, so it was passed for the... And I hate that we did three hours of work, and now the next uh, group's going to meet and not have full understanding of all the work that we did for three hours. But that, by the way, is the hardest I ever worked at General Assembly. In the first General Assembly, this was the 49th. The first one I went to was the 25th. 
So I've been an elder for a while. Um, I'm going to just stop and give you a history of this church and tell you this. Um, Cross Creek Presbyterian Church, September 5th, 1976 is when we started. A guy named Samuel Jackson was a lay pastor. He was the first one to hold service, and he held it in his home uh, September 12th, 1976. Uh, then they began to meet in what is called the, uh, the Carolina Theater. It's kind of neat. My father-in-law built that facility. He was a construction worker. So I know exactly where it used to be. Um, so they met there for a while. And then uh, Bob Wilson became the first pastor, and he was installed on June 23, 1977. In 1978, we moved um, to uh, a house on Hay Street just up the hill and met there for a while. I wasn't involved yet. And then on Old Fort Bragg Road beside what's now Terry Sanford High School, uh, the school that I graduated from, the first year it became Terry Sanford. So I remembered it as Fayetteville Senior High, not Terry Sanford. But I was not thrilled that we were going to name it for a politician. In fact, I climbed the water tower locally and painted FHS Forever and FTS Never on it and was a school hero for a little while. Little did a lot of people know I almost fell off that tower doing it, though. <laughs> um, but anyway, there was a Confederate women's home and they had a chapel and uh, some rooms that they, they were bedrooms, and we started meeting in the rooms in the chapel. And that's when I became involved um, with this, this church. Um, okay, so in 1981, um, we looked at this four-acre track of land that this church is currently on, and we made a down payment of $19,000, and made a first monthly payment of $8,700. And originally it cost another $43,000. To give you an idea of how the way the cost of living is, my home cost me less than $40,000. It's worth more than three times that amount. Uh, my folks' home cost $10,000. It was a five-bedroom home. So the cost of living is substantial. Homes in the Raleigh area right now, the medium price is just under $600,000 for a home. It's like five eighty-seven, I think. Oh, so August 9th, 1981, the sign went up that I told you I used to drive by and stare at all the time and say, can't wait for the new church to be here. Um, 1983, uh, Randy Wilding became the pastor. and um, He was an associate pastor in Charlotte. And when he came here, this was his first pastorship. And uh, he served um, three years. So in 1981, the year before he came, Cross Creek uh, had its first church built here. And I will tell you, looking at that door, the church ended right behind the, the light switch. And just went straight back. It didn't go off to the left out here at all. So the ramp that we go up is a section that was added onto. And it was added on to this hand that you see right here was added this, this distance. And then later, from here forward, was added on um, when we initially were going to build a sanctuary where the ground is all, there's no trees out front. We removed them all to build a sanctuary. 
and 65% of the church deployed to Desert Storm. And we went, ooh, maybe financially now is not the right time to do this. We have never um, rebuilt the, uh, the number of membership that we had then. We were at the point where we had to meet uh, twice every, every Sunday just to get all the members of the church. And I did not like that at all personally because you don't feel like you know half of the church if you only go to one of them. I mean, you, don't, you know them, but you don't really know them as well. So, you know, we were looking very much forward to the brand new sanctuary. We still have the blueprints and everything for it. So hopefully in the near future that will happen. Um, so in 1986, uh, Reverend Randy Wilding resigned. In 1987, Jim Braden became uh, our third pastor. And Jim was pretty unique. We gave up church particular status so that we could get a, a pastor that was specifically trained and ready to uh, start a church for mission all the way up. We thought the church was struggling so bad we needed an extra strong minister, and boy, we got one. He was very, very strong. Um, um, he was a fellow that would tell you, I don't need a microphone, although I always believe you do, especially for the hearing impaired. And he would speak boldly and loudly at one level almost always. If you ever dropped his voice, you knew you were getting, he was drawing your attention in so that he could hammer you real good with whatever his final conclusion was. But outstanding uh, pastor, had a major impact on my spiritual walk for 20, over 20 years. Um, so he retired in 2011, and then Josh Owen came on the scene. And Josh uh, was a pastor for uh, nine years. And then, of course, Michael Mock, our fifth pastor. I have a bunch of more information I could give you in great detail, but it's not thrilling. But this is much more thrilling stuff. Our historian has a phenomenal collection of material that I would love for some of you to come up and look at. And you will die laughing when you see me in my younger days probably and you see my wife and kids my baby is 40 now so you're going to see her when she was four <laughs> and you'll see pictures of all these previous pastors you'll see pictures of the church as it was being built um, you can see the dirt the first shovels hitting the, the soil so I invite you to, to sneak this way and take a look um, don't hold it up high, though. You need to put it down in a chair somewhere, like over here. Please ask me any questions you have, because I have lots more I could say, but I don't want to bore you half to death. Did, did this cover anything you wanted to know about how the PCA got started? Did I miss something that you thought I should have included? Gee, I could assume I did a good job, but probably not. <laughs> I will tell you, um, huh. this is the church that led me to the Lord. I am hmm, getting real emotional. <clears throat> My wife and I dated. I was raised a Christian scientist. 
My grandmother was a Christian science practitioner, and I will tell you there is no Christianity in Christian science. And when I dated my wife, she asked me if I was a Christian, and I said yes, because I thought I was. And after we married, she attended my church three times and said, you struck out, I can't go to your church anymore. Well, I wasn't that kind. I didn't come to this church for months, and when I came, I didn't like it at all initially. And then one of the elders here held an at-home study on Ephesians, and I started to recognize some significant need for me to change. And then Pastor Wilding, a very young pastor at the time, said, we've, we've got a meeting of people that I want you to come to. And I said, what's the meeting for? He goes, for people interested in becoming members. So I'm, I'm not interested in becoming a member. He said, no, I want you to come so you know what our theology is, what we believe, what we stand in for. We met, and I asked core, core questions that were extraordinarily challenging to him. And he told me, he said, I have never even thought at that level in some areas and have never been taught some of those things. I would like you to meet me one-on-one from now on. So for six weeks, we met for two hours. And I really challenged him. I said, I was misled uh, in my previous non-faith. So stop quoting other men unless they're quoting scripture and start quoting scripture because I don't want any false misleads. And that made it extra challenging for him to answer a lot of my questions. He would say, i got to do research and see you next week. At the end of all that, he handed me a, um, a pamphlet, and I went, yay, Jehovah's Witnesses, I can't wait to find the trash can for this. Took it home, poured a cup of coffee, read it, and went right to the, my knees on the floor and asked the Lord into my life. So don't be surprised. Things can change very fast for you. Um, I had people ask me to serve as deacon for years, and I said, Scripture's clear on that. New members should never be leaders. Uh, pride issue potential is, and I, that, I will not deny, I'm like most all of us, I have pride sinful nature that I struggle with all the time. I want to take credit and pat myself on the back when it's the Lord all the time. So, um, but eventually I did become a deacon in the church, and took over the treasury, and then slowly watched the church grow and grow and grow. And then for years, people asked me to be an elder, and I declined that too. But I've been an elder more than 25 years now. I am the longest-serving elder, but not the oldest. So, And probably not the wisest or the smartest by a long shot. But I do have a very sincere heart for the Lord. Let me uh, close this in prayer and then have you come up and look at this, this book. Our Lord and our God, we come before you humbled by who you are, holy, 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 holy God. And Father, uh, we openly confess um, that we don't love you as good as you ask. You said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And every one of us have sinned at one time or another uh, during the day. And we pray forgiveness for our sin and thank you that you assured us that through your Holy Spirit that our those that you have chosen will persevere, will be saved eternally. And Father, we thank you for this church, your church here at Cross Creek. Pray your blessing upon it. Pray your blessing upon the service today. Lord, that you will use the chaplain that's speaking today to your glory and that we will have eyes and ears to hear and see and understand 
through Christ. Amen. And please come forward and look at this. And if you see something you want to ask, 